Welcome to Parlay Me Power Players. This is a podcast that explores the latest entrepreneurs, startups, founders, business leaders, and even enterprises that are changing the game. We call them the disruptors. You might see them as your mentors or maybe even your colleagues, but we are so excited to bring to you each week someone we find either fascinating, progressive, or someone that's really making changes in all kinds of industries. We are agnostic in what we cover, so we cover everything from mobility to AI to food and produce, you name it, we cover it. But most importantly, we want to showcase to you entrepreneurs that are really making a difference and making the world a better place. Hi folks, so welcome to Parlay Me Power Plays podcast. Today we have some very special guests on the show. We have Chris Smith, who's a managing partner, and Henrik Vetter Sanchez, who's the associate from Playfair Capital. Now, for those that don't know, Playfair Capital is a global venture capital firm with a focus on the UK. And today we're speaking to both Chris and Hendrik from London today. So most importantly, Playfair has been helping ambitious and exceptional entrepreneurs since 2013. They've backed the founders of more than 60 companies, including Crypto Facilities, Mapillaria, Raveline, Stripe, Thought Machine, and Truva, just to name a few. Playfair Capital is an early stage fund that invests in entrepreneurs building technology companies that ultimately rethink the way we live and work. They describe themselves as a generalist fund and which gives them some degree of flexibility in what they invest in. And it's a very broad spectrum of startups that they do invest in. So since launching their $32 million fund, yes, you heard that right, $32 million fund in March 2019, with primarily a focus on deep tech and B2B, they have led deals throughout the world and the UK and Israel too. So most recently, they have been awarded the Europa's Award, which is actually, for those that don't know, one of Europe's hottest tech startup competitions, which is relatively new but very exciting competition. And they received what was called the Europa's Winner for the Seed Fund Award. So firstly, welcome to you both to the show. It's really fantastic to have you both here today. I've actually been a big fan, if, if that's the right word, but I have been a big fan of Playfair Capital, especially in regards to what's called your female founder office hours, which we'll go into a little bit later in the cast. But firstly, I'd love to kick off with a little bit about you both, um, how you came to join Playfair, I guess the journey, um, you know, from the beginning would be nice if we have time today, and then what's led you up to today. So if okay, perhaps Chris, we might start with you. What I understand, you joined Playfair Capital in 2018. Prior to that, you spent about four years with a business communications provider called plan.com where you oversaw sales and operations. So prior to joining Playfair, you were also an angel investor with approximately 14 deals and three exits. And you also spent over eight years as a corporate lawyer. <laughs> so you've done a lot. Um, the, the law firm, I believe, was a New York-based law firm um, and you worked in mergers and acquisitions. So, you know, while you also being an angel investor yourself, it's safe to say you were a pretty busy guy. <laughs> so, um, and obviously very deeply immersed in the startup ecosystem prior to joining Playfair. Can you tell us a little more about, I guess, firstly, what drew you to venture capital and then why, I guess, you chose venture capital? Because it sounds like you have such a robust 
background, you could have pretty much done anything. <laughs> so first of all, thanks so much for, for having us on the on the podcast. Um, yeah, it was a long meandering path to to get into into venture capital, and as you said, it included a stint as a, an operator at Plan.com, both on the on the sales side. So I was sales director for a couple of years, building out the team there, and then three years running the software development and data science team. Uh, a stint as a as a corporate lawyer, actually pretty miserable to be honest. Uh, didn't, didn't enjoy that very much, uh, but learned, learned a fair bit. Uh, and I had my own telecoms business uh, back at university, so very much a hobby business, uh, offering cheap international calls to, to students, but something that ultimately I scaled with a, the co-founder up to, to 14 countries. So I, I think for me, venture combines all the stuff that, that I love, really. Uh, so building companies, it fascinates me. Uh, being part of a journey as an investor uh, and being invested in the true sense, so not just financially, but actually being part of that journey. Is something that I just find really, really exciting, uh, and being in a place where I'm just—I guess I'm constantly stimulated. So, you know, taking pictures from founders every day about their their business is just always extremely interesting. It always means that you're learning about the newest technology and the newest ideas. So that keeps the job incredibly fresh, incredibly interesting. Can't ever see myself getting getting bored of it. And I think working with founders just gives that incredible variety. So. Having worked at, say, Prime.com, first three years, this incredible learning curve, then it started to plateau. In venture, there's just never that opportunity because I sit on the boards of six, seven companies and there's always new challenges to be looking at. So I guess for me, it's a combination, this incredible diversity, the intellectual stimulation and the opportunity to work with so many, so many amazing founders. Mm, yeah, look, no one day is ever quite the same when you work in venture capital or the startup world, for sure. So I'd love to kind of delve a little bit into also like the early days of Playfair. Obviously, you joined in 2018, but it was established in 2013 by Federico Patricio Barilli, I think I pronounced that right, and um, who, as I understand, continues to be um, the, seed, the seed fund's sole source and finance Um with only having one limited partner obviously has its benefits. Um, and I understand you've launched about two funds today. So can you tell our listeners perhaps a little more about the infamous Fetty? Because <laughs> it just sounds it sounds a very, very interesting guy, obviously, and how you came to know him, I guess, and build up what is today one of Europe's top VC firms. Yeah, of course, an infamous. He'll, he'll definitely like that. So, <laughs> so... So Fede, uh, like, is an incredibly interesting character. So when he graduated from university, he actually originally went off and worked with some NGOs, charities, and actually a couple of startups in Africa, because his primary interest was having a positive impact on the world. Uh, actually, that interested in, in generating financial returns, at least it wasn't his primary goal. But after a couple of years, he got a little bit frustrated with kind of the bureaucracy uh, particularly with the charities and NGOs, and it wasn't quite having the impact that he wanted. So he came to London around 2010, started to get involved in what was then a very nascent angel investing ecosystem, took a desk in White Bay Yard, so one of the really early co-working spaces, worked with Robert and Eileen, who are now partners of Passion Capital, uh, another great fund based in London, and started to write angel checks. And he planned to write about half a dozen ended up doing, I think, about 25 in two years. So he'd found what he loved doing, which was backing 
founders with these incredible missions to change the world, and he loved to watch those companies then grow and flourish. But what he realized was that as an angel, his kind of impact was limited. Um, he couldn't support the founders in the way that he wanted, and he needed a team to scale up what he was doing. And that's why he founded Playfair. So Playfair Fund 1, he ran as a managing partner, and that ran from 2013 to 2018. He also built a co-working space. So we have a three-story building in Clerkenwell. And that was actually pretty much the hub of the ecosystem uh, in the early days. So like, when Textiles moved over to the UK, they based themselves there. We also incubated a bunch of other funds and startups. It was this crazy and very cool place um, for, a number, for a number of years. And I think that really set the tone for what Playfair is all about, which is this kind of founder first kind of community centered culture um ultimately Fede loves you know building things he loves supporting founders and really putting their success at the center of everything so he kind of gave us those those ideals and that culture to live up to so when he stepped back from the day-to-day -day running of the fund in uh, in 2018 and I came on board you know that's what we've been trying to continue uh, ever since um, and I was fortunate because I was introduced to him actually through one of my angel investments, a guy called Ben Caulfield, who's the CEO of, uh, of ED. So that's how I got to know Fede. Okay, wow. It sounds like, you know, the story of how the band got together. I love it. It's uh, And it definitely sounds like the place to be. Um, so look, um, Henrik, you're on the call too. I'd love to just um, touch base with you too. Um, as I understand, you're kind of best known, um, lack of a better word, the numbers guy. But, uh, you know, you obviously you help startups with their financial modelling, preparing them for the next round, which is vital. Um, but you also bring a lot to the table with many attributes um, that make you a really unique investor uh, from your experience working in investment banking um, to speaking three languages. Um, and you once said that you have an entrepreneurial mindset since you're quite young. So can you tell us a little more about this? Because I'm always fascinated with people that obviously come to the table with kind of this entrepreneurial spirit um, from a young age. I certainly had it myself. Um, and how, it, I guess, it led you to work in venture capital and at Playfair. Yes, of course. And first of all, thank you, January, for having me on the podcast. Um, I've, listened to, I've listened to almost a dozen now and I absolutely love them. So thank you for having us. Oh, great. Excellent. It's good to know that people are listening. <laughs> no, I know they are, but it's always good to hear. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, it's a great question because I think being entrepreneurial is at the very heart of why a lot of people do venture capital. Um, for me personally, my mother was an entrepreneur or has been an entrepreneur for her whole life. So I've sort of experienced it firsthand. Um, and I think I've seen the, the power of doing things um, yourself and starting something from scratch. Um, I tried to copy that at school with the most obvious way I knew, which was setting up a sweet shop. So I gave everyone a, a sweet addiction um, when I was much younger. Um, I then took a little bit more seriously at, at university. So while I was studying at Cambridge, I set up a um, startup called Rendezvous, which was essentially helping people find the most convenient middle, middle point between them in a city and then suggesting places to go there. So it was sort of like City Mapper meets um, you know, Yelp or something like that. Um, which I loved. It was an amazing experience. I sort of did for about two years on the side. Also taught me why venture capital is important because venture capital is all about business models that work, that support good ideas. Um, and sadly, there was not a good business model behind Rendezvous. Um, so I went into the world of investment banking. And that's how I've become the numbers guy at Playfair. Um, I sold my soul for a few years 
it wasn't something that inspired me, but you do learn a huge amount from that environment and you learn it incredibly quickly. Um, and so I think now basically at, at Playfair, you know, I've realized there's the fundamental thing that gives me curiosity about the world is the power of building something from nothing. And there's two ways of doing that. You can do it as a founder, if you have an idea yourself you're passionate about, or as an investor. And as an investor, you can support multiple ideas simultaneously. And I think that's what um, really interests and drives me. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, it looks like you've definitely found your home at Playfair. Um, I guess for those listening and want to know either like their founders or their budding kind of venture capitalists themselves, but kind of can you tell us a little bit about what, what's a typical day? And again, no day is the same, I know. But what what is sort of, I guess, the day-to-day role that you do at Playfair? I know you um, support um, Chris quite a lot. How do you kind of balance um you know, the workload and yeah, the dynamic of every day is different. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you already, you already know the answer. And I think honestly, variety is the fundamental thing in a job but mm-hmm. as an associate at a venture capital firm. Um, I think you need to be able to work on multiple different um, projects at the same time um, in many different domains. And that's the reason that, that I love it so much is that no day is the same. But just to give people a bit more of a sense, I think you can break it down into a few key areas. I mean, number one is ultimately pitches with founders. You know, that's the that's the bread and butter of your of your job. You want to try and meet new people with new ideas, um, trying to disrupt um, new or existing markets. And the more people like that you can meet, the more inspired you can be by the end of the day, and the more likely you're, you are to find the next big thing. Um, mm-hmm. Once you've done that, though, you obviously need to actually support your portfolio. You can't just give people money and hope it grows on trees. You actually need to get quite quite closely involved, and um, you know I sit on four or five boards, either directly or, or supporting Chris and, and Joe um, as the partners at the at Playfair, and you know that can be anything from you know attending a meeting once or twice a month to actually working with them every single day on their strategy, on their hiring, um, on their sales, etc. Um, I think two of the other key areas would probably be due diligence. So once you get a deal that you're quite excited about that the team's excited about you obviously need to go and do quite a lot of work to validate assumptions on the product on the market um customer reference calls things like that so that's where you can start to go quite deep you know we talked a lot about the breadth of the job but that's where you can go quite deep and probably the last one is more about community and content you know i think 2021 is only going to come more important um of how venture capital funds, how founders use their communities and their reach online. Um, And so that is an important part of what we do. Um, And that's everything from personal to professional. So maintaining our our social presence, but also writing personal blog posts and articles um, that we all love doing. Which, I, which which is something I want to talk about further in the, in the cast, which I love about you guys. You have a fantastic blog. You're very active on social. There's like, there's there's no short of content, which I know working at Parlay Me, that's a full-time job in itself. So I'd love to discuss that a little bit later. But um, what is the typical check size at Playfair kind of around about, let's say you're, you know, um, from C to, I guess, Series A, what, what, what does it range from? Yeah, so I think it's it's usually between a hundred thousand and five hundred thousand at the beginning, and that range is essentially the difference between a pre-seed round and a seed round. So, um, the largest round we usually get involved with is sort of two million. Um, so you can kind of figure out uh, along the way where that sliding scale fits. 
the second part of that is follow on investment. So we'll invest usually up to one to one and a half million total over the lifetime of an investment. Um, so depending at what point we'll come in, you know, the check sizes can range um, from that point up until we sort of hit our allocation. Sure, sure. Okay, cool. Um, it's always good to know. Um, so Chris, um, back to you. I'd love to know a little bit about how you also help startups, startups with their sales pro- processes, because that's that's a huge thing. Um, you know, you can have an idea, but selling it and finding your clients is a different thing. So when you're, you know, you're, you help from what I, I understand, um, starts with a sales strategy to hiring the right salespeople. Um, to you know incentives Um, can you give us some examples and I guess not without maybe or maybe you can name but if you can't name a specific startup just an example of one that you've actually helped them with their sales processes yeah absolutely so it's it's worth mentioning just as a general comment that a lot of the companies we invest in have deeply technical and brilliant founders but not necessarily that experienced on the sales side so you know, one of the things we do, uh, or I do specifically, actually, is just some coaching with them on how to think about sales. So that can often take the form of a weekly or maybe every couple of weeks having a check-in with them, thinking about their, just their general sales approach, checking out their pipeline, talking through some strategies. So I absolutely do that with uh, with a number of founders. But I think the more general strategy piece we go through is that most of the founders we work with. Um, all the sales is CEO-led. So there's a founder, they've got the pipeline in their head, the process is in their head, uh, they haven't yet got a team. And what they need to do is figure out how to scale their sales effort. So this can include things like figuring out the right software to get to actually manage their pipeline. It can be figuring out the right people to hire. And on that, I lean on Joe heavily. So Herrick referred to Joe earlier, but Joe's ex-Google yeah. and Facebook, he used to do technical recruitment there. Um, so Joe helps us hugely on the on the hiring process. So figuring out how to hire the right people into the organization and figuring out how to document a process that can scale are all things that we can we work with founders on. I think the most recent example would be a company called AeroCloud, um, where we went in, amazing CEO, a guy called George Richardson. He knows sales inside out but he didn't necessarily know how to scale a team. And so we've been working with him. We've now got two SDRs in place and a head of sales in North America. And that's been a combination of George working with myself and Joe to make that happen. Brilliant, brilliant. So it sounds like you're very um, kind of hands-on in a way, um, I guess, where it's where it's needed. Um, which brings me to my next question, which perhaps, Chris, you can um, elaborate on. Um, and what seems very unique about Playfair is that you've adapted kind of this angel investing approach, which seems fitting, right, considering your experience and also Fetty, um, where like enthusiasm, empathy, hands-on decision-making, a, a speed at which you can make decisions is quite characteristic of your firm. Can you kind of talk, I guess, a little bit of how these aspects give you an advantage over other VC firms, I mean, other than the obvious, because they're all brilliant aspects, but how does it really give you that leg up, do you think? I mean, I think it, it yeah, as you say, I mean, there's clearly some speed advantages. You know, we don't have a, a sort of hierarchy or any too much formality to worry about. So we can make decisions, we can make decisions quickly. Uh, in the case of competitive rounds, there's certainly, a, you know, one business we invested in where our speed 
absolutely meant that we we won the we won the investment, uh, which was fantastic. But I think ultimately it, it kind of comes down to how we build relationships with founders. And I think founders are typically surprised or often surprised by the initial in- interactions we have with them and how different they are compared with some other funds. So, you know, we typically talk about the founders' stories and their backgrounds and we want to get to know them personally. And I think that contrasts quite strongly with experiences of other first pitch meetings where it tends to be all about the financials and diving into an Excel sheet. So, you know, we really do care about the story. And I think that's very typical of angels as well. So I think that really helps to get the relationship um, off to a good start and build a stronger relationship from the outset. Brilliant, brilliant. And I'm sure it's it's this approach has kind of helped you attract some really dynamic founders and long-term relationships um can can you I guess tell us perhaps we'd love to just chat really quickly um about kind of the I guess your fund and some of the deals you've done so from my understanding your first fund was around 20 million um I don't know if you were part of that or not but you closed around 55 deals across 11 countries um between 2013 and 2018 so I'm guessing that's prior to you um but exits so far include and jump in there because you know better than I do, but um, include like cryptocurrency exchange, like crypto facilities, which I understand sold for a hundred million live investments, um, which included banking uh, software developer, thought machine, payment security firm, Ravelin and independent fashion boutique, which I particularly love <laughs> aggregator called Truva. Um, can you, I guess when it comes to exits, right? Like everyone wants to know, how do you get that exit? Well, firstly, how do you identify the startup that's going to give you the exit? That's number one. But obviously, how do you know when it's the right time to exit? So I guess in your experience, if you can share with us kind of, you know, you get lots of offers, but how do you know when it's the right one? Are there any kind of tips you can give us today? I know it's a it's a big open question, but we'd love any advice you might have there. I mean, I think you need an offer. So let's start there. Yeah. Um, I think that Many funds are constrained a little bit here and they need to think about returning the money they've deployed within a set timeline. So most funds are set up to be maybe 10 years. They can probably extend by maybe one or two years. So as a founder, depending on when the fund invested in you, they're going to have to get that money back to their LPs, to their investors in a set timeline. So that can obviously sometimes drive when an exit needs to happen. It's worth noting that at Playfair, we don't have that. So we can be a lot more open-minded about the timing of an exit. And I think that leads on to the point that the right time for an exit, I think, is generally when the founders feel it's the right time for an exit. And that's because mm-hmm. you want the founders fully bought in to driving and building the business. If that's how they feel, they're going to make the business successful. If it's not, then perhaps it's the right time um, to, to consider an exit. I think. Really good example of that would be um, one of our recent exits was Mapillary, which sold to Facebook. I think two things happened there. One, I think the founders felt the time was optimal for an exit. Uh, and secondly, uh, they felt that Facebook was an excellent home to further their mission and their objectives. So I think there's two things combined. I think if the founders feel the timing is right and the acquisition represents a a good home and a good opportunity to further the mission of the company, then I think that that suggests that the timing is right. Um, 
Mm. One final point, though, I, I think, you know, you, you build a company um, to make something, right, to build something big. I don't think you build something to target an exit. And I think if you do that and you build to target an exit, it probably will never happen. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I agree with that. You've got to kind of focus on building the business and the exit will come, you know, naturally if it's a good business, right? Um, kind of, I guess, want to reverse engineer the question a little bit and go to when you do invest and how you look to invest. So, you know, when you're investing, I guess, in and obviously, um, Henrik, uh, feel free to jump in on this one too or or Chris, whoever, whoever wants to, but, you know, investing in C to series A is fraught with risk, obviously, um, but it's the highest return, right? So it's why we do it. Um, or, you know, what advice would you give, I guess, to budding VC investors about navigating this space? Again, it's a broad question, but just maybe some best practices uh, for identifying, you know, how to, I guess, de-risk. <laughs> yeah, of course, I'm very happy to jump in on this one. Um, I mean, I think an obvious point, but and it still needs to be made is that seed and series A are very, very different. Um, series A, you really can invest on on metrics. Um, at seed, there aren't really very many metrics to go on. So I think you really need to understand that there isn't that much substitute to building up pattern recognition, basically making mistakes, learning from those mistakes um, and understanding how not to repeat them. Um, you know, as, as Chris will know from his angel investment career, and I know a little bit less, but to the same extent um, in crowdfunding that I did for sort of four or five years before I joined Playfair, um, actually quite a lot of the investments that you lose money on um, give you lessons that you remember for a lot longer um, in the same way that, you know, my sort of failed startup experience at Rendezvous has taught me a huge amount about um, business models and scalability. Um, I think finally, seed is where you really get your hands dirty. And I think you need to like getting your hands dirty. You know, I'd almost put it as like joining as a co-founder. You know, your seed investor is almost the second or third co-founder of a business. Um, you're joining at that point where you move from idea and early product to a business that makes money and you're scaling. Um, and I think that's the the real difference and you need to understand, understand that and know what you're in for. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's that's brilliant. It is very much like a co-founder when you're in such those early, I guess, in the trenches, as they say, um, at the beginning. So that's great. So um, I, I guess a question for you, Chris, if you don't mind, because, um, and again, uh, feel free to jump in, Hendrik, but, um, you know, when you're onboarding new startups um, during, I guess, what we call the courting stage <laughs> uh, or the dating stage, however you want to call it, um, you guys often work with them a bit before you invest so can you tell us a little bit about this approach and why it's beneficial for both you and the startup before I guess you know you sign the dotted line so to speak yeah of course I mean I think this happens very naturally so if you think about the fact we see hundreds well we actually see thousands of, of companies every year the companies that we ultimately invest in they, they sort of naturally I guess they rise to the top and we get very excited about them and as we get excited about those companies and we start to, to get to know the founders, that passion starts to come through. And part of the reason we do this job is because we want to see companies successful and we really like to help and support those companies. So it's a very natural extension of, frankly, the way our brains work. That <laughs> If we're sitting down with a company, we think, oh, I can introduce you to that person or, you know, have you thought about doing that? And so I think if we're excited, if we're getting passionate about an opportunity, we almost can't help ourselves um, making those introductions or suggestions or, or, or trying to trying to be 
helpful. So it's a very natural part of the process rather than a rather than a sales tactic. Um, and I think it goes back to that point we were discussing earlier about this kind of angel mentality. You know, we only invest when we're passionate about the opportunity. Um, and I think one of the real advantages from the founder's perspective is that, you know, if we're investing in you, you kind of know that we're all in. You know, we're not investing because we can see it's going to be profitable. We hope it's profitable. We're investing because we genuinely, we're genuinely excited about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. No, that's that. Look, that's definitely. Um, I don't want to use the word exciting, but it is an exciting approach that you guys actually look for things that you're generally passionate about, right? So, if you guys are passionate, you know, everyone's in and they're in on the same same playing field. So, I like it. Um. To, what I particularly love about you guys um, and why, you know, another reason we're interviewing today, in fact, is um, something called your female founder office hours. So you have this very, I guess, again, this even playing field approach um, to founders, which I find great. Like you have your online pitch, uh, which you can actually go to your website. If you're listening to this podcast, you can go to the Playfair's website and you can actually submit kind of your your um you know business idea um which is kind of a really great way to make it even level playing field so it's not just necessary who you know but anyone can literally go to your website and submit which is great you also have you hold what's called a female founder office hours um which you do in collaboration with i think about 10 other founds sorry 10 other funds um who you know meet all together about 45 female founders in total you did a bunch of these last year and they were super successful um maybe Henrik you can tell us a little more about how you started these office hours and I guess what it means to both Playfair and also your founder community at large yes of course um no I've I could talk about this for hours so I'll try and uh, I'll try and do it in less time than that um but essentially, we, we started this in, in 2019. Um, it was after a personal experience of one of our early fund two deals in Vine Health, um, which was set up by two amazing female co-founders, um, Raina and Georgina. And I think it was just a reminder of a problem that's extremely apparent. So everyone knows that female founders don't get enough funding, but you need to sometimes be re-spurred into action. And I think that was just a really kind of potent reminder for us. So we basically set out as you as you mentioned, with those ten funds and about forty five founders, and that was in October twenty nineteen. I think at last count, we've now run three editions of the event um, for five hundred female founders, two thousand one on one mentoring wow. and pitch meetings, and a hundred investors. So it's been amazing to see how that's grown. Um, we think it's really not a sort of individual game. We're trying to rise the tide for everyone. As you, as you mentioned, mm. we basically want to get to this level playing field for all founders in tech. You know, gender is one key starting point. Half, half of the world is female. It's quite an easy one just to cover people of all backgrounds. But I think there are lots of other um, areas that we need to work on. For anyone listening to this, though, I think the two problems we basically see is just a lack of funding and support and barriers to accessing investors. Um, and so the four solutions that, you know, these female founder office hours um, provide is access. You don't need warm intros. Being remote geography isn't a barrier. We had people who used to fly across the country for these events. Um, collaboration. Anyone can work together. Um, all groups, all initiatives working together. And then fundamentally founder driven. You know, we want people to ask for advice, ask for feedback, ask for funding if it's appropriate. 
or introductions. It's not just a pitch event. It's a genuine two-way um, event where founders get to set the agenda um, and get hopefully a meaningful outcome. So um, our next edition's in, yeah. in May. Um, check out our website. All the details are on there. And if you're an investor listening to this, then reach out to us and we can add you to the waiting list. Absolutely. And we'll be parlaying it for sure. I sat in on one last year and I can I can speak firsthand. They're brilliant. And, you know, what is, you touched on it, it you know, you can, the industry can acknowledge that there's a problem, but it's another thing to actually do something about it. And it's just brilliant that you guys are doing something about it. So I thank you for that. Um, I, I Another thing that you do brilliantly well is um, your social media. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about that in your blog. Um, perhaps, Henrik, you might want to take this one again, if Chris, you do. Um, but I guess, you know, you guys actually engage in social media. I guess in, I guess, I'm not going to call this a post-pandemic world because it's definitely still a pandemic environment we're in. But how important is social media to connecting and growing your brand? And what have you uh, found that really works? Maybe some tips you can have for other um, venture capitalists out there trying to get some traction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, venture capital has, until very recently, been an incredibly opaque industry. Very few people know how it works, exactly how it works. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I think most funds would have a landing page that said something like, reach out to us if you know someone who knows us, which is incredibly unhelpful um, and very difficult yeah. to break down sort of traditional um, barriers. So I think, you know, we basically like writing content that helps founders navigate that opaque process, um, trying to put everyone on a level playing field. Um, I think you need to have fundamental content and then you need to distribute it in the right way to re reach people. So you're not just shouting within your own, within your own bubble. Um, mm -hmm. Fundamentally though, we all love doing it. You know, we actually like writing blog posts about, um, you know, something either professional kind of straight on the blog or something more personal. Um, you know, I've written about why I joined Playfair back in the day as his Jivan on your associate. Um, that's a much more personal story, but I think people need to see both a more kind of technical, um, you know, educational angle, as well as a personal angle to be inspired. Um, so I think for anyone mm -hmm. thinking about how to start their content strategy, think about what value do you have to offer and how can you inspire people? And if you can combine the two, I think it can be a very powerful message. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's brilliant. I'm always, I, you guys, are, you're pros. You're really, you're really great at it. And I, read a lot of your content obviously I, I read a lot online um I'd love to know um so actually back to Chris if that's okay really quickly um Chris a few years ago you were once asked in an interview what sector of startups was most exciting to you and at the time you said urban air mobility um I just wanted to revisit that is that still the case and if so why and if not what does excite you more today I mean it feels difficult to say urban air mobility when we're in lockdown three in the UK and I can't leave my uh, I can't leave my local area <laughs> shall we but urban is not space you're right <laughs> good point um, no, look I mean I, I do still think that the I, I think the air mobility space and particularly drones is extremely uh, exciting and we've absolutely seen things evolve quite quickly there so actually in the UK um, the NHS was using drones to deliver medical supplies to the Isle of Wight. We've seen Zipline deliver medical supplies uh, in parts of Africa. Uh, we've seen Mana Aero, um, company based over in Ireland, 
trialing and scaling up um, deliveries as well. So that, that, that space is still exciting. Uh, I think human transportation is probably a little bit further away um, than it may have been otherwise, perhaps slightly slowed by the pandemic, um, a few regulatory hurdles to still clear. Um, but actually, I think deliveries um, is the most exciting area within the sort of drone space uh, at the moment. So, yeah, still still uh, an exciting area to watch. Okay, interesting. Deliveries within the drone space. I love it. So, and Henrik, what are, what sector are you kind of, what's exciting you at the moment? So, I mean, I think um, from a personal angle, I've spent some of lockdown trying and failing most of the time to learn how to code because um, wow. I spent most of uh, my childhood doing things like in IT, touch typing and stuff like that, and clearly missed the entire wave of um, the more fundamental skills that people who are probably five years old now do in their sleep. Um, but I think it's actually, it's revealed an amazing opportunity where you can basically bridge the gap between um, the non-technical and the technical using technological advances and that sort of low code and no code. Um, it's been around for a, for a while in different areas, but I think we're starting to see a, see a sort of second wave um, where these tools can become even more deeply embedded in what we do to the extent you may you may not even realize they're there. So um, things like Zapier or If This Then That have been quite popular on both the consumer and business sides. Um, but I think there's a, there's a huge amount more to be done there. Um, and I think it's almost that, that mantra of if it looks easy, it's actually incredibly complicated behind the scenes. And so that's the magic of it. Um, so yeah. very excited to see how that plays out. Excellent, excellent. I'm I'm sure you're probably exceptionally good at it, considering your numbers and you're great at with languages. And I I must say, my brain unfortunately doesn't work that way. I build things in Wix really well, but coding's a whole other level. So my hat goes off to you. Well done. Keep yourself busy. Um, Chris, um, something you actually once said, I'd love to chat just quickly about. Um, you once pointed out that the vast majority of returns are heavily concentrated in the top 1% to 3% of companies. We're aiming for companies to become one of those 1 billion plus fabled unicorns. So I'm going to ask you <laughs> a question which you may or may not be able to answer, but it's just good to know any markers you might look for. What? How do you recognise an early-stage unicorn? So, you know, again, no magic answer, but are there some markers that you really look for? I with the founders or the business model or anything like that? Firstly, I love the fact that you're picking out all these quotes I made over the, the last couple of years. That That's awesome. So yeah. hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully they will make sense. Uh, <laughs> um, identifying unicorns, right? That's um, it's kind of an interesting business. I think um, Henrik kind of alluded to it earlier when he talked about the difference between investing at seed and, and series A. Um, at Seed, there's very little to go on. We really are taking a view on the founders. So I think we put a huge weight on the founders and then we look at the market and then we put a little bit on the product. But we know the product's going to change. It's going to go through a bunch of iterations. So for us, it's about finding exceptional founders and it's about finding markets that are supportive of building a really big company. So Market is the easier one. We're looking for big markets that are growing really quickly um, and that will support a big business. Um, so those, those are relatively relatively easy to identify. You know, there's data around uh, around them to support 
to support our thesis and we can kind of figure figure that out founders is much harder founders is like I kind of just know it I know it when I meet a founder um, that I think has the potential to build a really big business and it's a combination of yes experience yes expertise but it's also about character it's about personality it's about passion it's about ambition it's this kind of whole package of things and the way that they they come across and it's incredibly it's incredibly hard to distill it down into something quantitative or to really to really summarize it and it goes back to what we were what we were saying that you know this business is largely about learning from your mistakes and about pattern recognition you kind of tend to we hope be able to identify the the founders capable of building these types of businesses because we've seen you know tens of thousands of founders um over the years so really for us it's about the founders and it's about getting that gut feeling that we think they're able to build something special yeah yeah and again i think it harks back to kind of angel investor approach which a lot of angels kind of use that that gut you know to know is this the right decision or not so no that's brilliant thank you for sharing that with us um I guess, you know, you guys offer a, a lot to to a founder. Anyone listening today, obviously, you know, obviously the check's important, but you offer a ton more. Um, that's what I want to talk a little bit more about. I can't, Obviously, um, you know, you offer things, I believe, like recruitment, like practical coaching you've touched upon. You have a thing, I believe, called Playfair Academy. You even give kind of Playfair Wellness Program, which gift vouchers to your to your founders, um, you know, for self-care and what, whatnot, to local wellness, um, you know, spas and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit, I guess, about the other things you guys do other than, obviously, <laughs> the check, you know? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think, you know, we recognise that, you know, founders have a choice of, of VCs. And so we try, I guess, through our team and through the things that we offer to be, you know, one of the best places for founders to to take investment and so we obviously have our team we obviously mentioned before um joe who's particularly uh adept on the on the hiring side so we mentioned before his background with with google and facebook you know he gets heavily involved in building out a robust talent and hiring process for for our companies so it's not an hour phone call uh with some tips it's actually getting immersed in the companies two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, whatever it takes to actually get the company where it needs to be. Mm. I tend to help a lot on on sales, marketing, PR in different areas. Hemrick, you know, we've already discussed um, numbers and an awful lot more around strategy and everything else. So, you know, we will wrap ourselves around the company, operate as a sounding board, give them all the advice that we can. We will, of course, introduce them to people where we don't know the answers. So I think access to our network, whether it's within our existing uh, founders or within our wider network, I think is important too. Um, and then, as you say, more broadly, we think it's right that we support them. So the Playfair Wellness Program was something we launched uh, about a year ago now. Um, it offers each founder £50 a month to spend on things to support their mental and physical well-being. So anything from yoga to Pilates to, to mindfulness to nutrition consultations, um, we just think that founders don't really get an opportunity to have the time for self-care and to look after themselves. And so that's something we wanted to, to kind of uh, wrap into the offering. Um, and we're always looking for other ways to help. So we tend to, if we find PR opportunities or 
other ways of, of helping our companies and supporting them will we'll do that too. Um, and Henrik and I were just reminiscing actually before the podcast that we used to have these wonderful founders dinners uh, a couple of times a year where we bring all our founders together and they could share war stories and uh, have a drink and some nice food. Of course, the pandemic has put paid to them for the time being, but you know they'll be back on the agenda hopefully in the, the second half of this year. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, with that in mind, I'd love to talk kind of a little bit about your portfolio a bit more. Um, it's very broad, um, which we discussed earlier, and it's, I believe it's like 50 companies across 11 countries. Can you share kind of why, I guess, you have this generalist fund approach and the advantages, obviously, in doing so? I mean, obviously, it means you can invest in any, you know, you're agnostic, you can invest in anything. But, um, yeah, what are the main advantages you've found and this approach? I find it quite interesting. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I think um, we grew up, as, as we know from the story and, and how Fede started uh, Playfair, you know, with this kind of angel mentality. And I think being a generalist fund allows us to look for the best founders and, you know, not worry too much about, you know, what sector they're in. So that singular focus on finding the best founders and building strong relationships with them, I think is probably what we're what we're good at and it's what we enjoy doing. So I think you should always play to your strengths. And that's that's what we try and do. I think from a from a personal perspective. Um, it also keeps the job incredibly fresh and exciting mm. because we're not restricted by a particularly narrow investment mandate. And it also means that we can adapt as trends change. So I think some funds that you know necessarily mm. have to have a very narrow focus to be differentiated in the market, to go out and raise money from LPs, um, can find themselves a little bit, a little bit stuck. Uh, if they're only investing in a very narrow section of the market, if the market subsequently changes. So I think our ability to adapt over time, um, you know, gives us the ability to invest in the best opportunities. And I think a really good reflection of that would be in Fund One, one of our former partners, uh, Nathan Banesh, uh, he's now at SG Capital. He started to become very interested in AI and machine learning. Um, that was something that we, you know, we really adapted to, and it's something we've taken into into fund too. So, you know, we can continue to evolve uh, our investment theses, we can continue to change them. Um, but ultimately, we also stay open minded to make sure we don't miss any opportunities. Brilliant. Yeah, look, I think it's a terrific approach, um, because amazing founders come from all different sectors. Um, I, something I'd love to talk a little more specific, if you can, um, again, if you can't, I totally get it, because it is like choosing your favourite child. But is there perhaps, um, you know, one startup you might be able to call out today that kind of, you know, perhaps Henrik, you might want to speak about this um, again, um, Chris, if you want to, but what drew, a, what drew you to the team and what you're doing to kind of scale or grow their startup is this kind of, I guess, an example, a case study you can quickly talk to us about. Again, if you can't, no worries. Um, just thought. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, we could talk about all of our companies in a huge amount of detail, but, you know, one that's particularly close to my heart is a company called Recycleye um, that announced its fundraise in December. Um, and that's actually been set up by two very young founders. Um, so they're both in their in their 20s. They spun this out of, um, out of Imperial. And their mission is essentially to try and solve the problem of, of waste. Um, recycling is not done by enough people in their homes, but what's even worse is even when they do do it, 
it's not actually properly sorted in plants. So a huge amount ends up going to landfill and the wider environmental global impact that everyone's becoming increasingly aware of is only getting worse. So, you know, those guys are essentially applying um, some deep computer vision technology to try and solve that problem in a way that human beings standing in front of a pretty grossy, dangerous sorting line um, in a massive warehouse can never possibly do to the same extent. Um, I think for us, that's quite an inspirational story that people, those two founders, Victor and Peter, have said, you know, I'm going to sort of throw in the opportunity of earning the big bucks at places like Goldman Sachs to go and solve a problem that's going to help the world. Um, They obviously need a lot of support on that journey. So, you know, Chris and I have been helping a huge amount on their on their strategy to how to find the balance between hardware and software. Um, Chris, more specifically on the sales side, as you talked about earlier, sitting down with them to figure out how can you improve that sales strategy from a very fundamental level. Um, and then Joe, you know, he helped them build from a team of two when we invested to I think a team of 14 today. Um, and that's been over, you know, a 12 month period. So, or even less. Um, so look, that's a perfect example of a, incredibly passionate team solving a huge problem with an incredibly strong product um, and super excited to see where they end up. And a good cause and a good cause to boot. So brilliant. Um, two last questions we always ask here at Parlay Me, both equally important. Um, and I'd love to, if you can both answer would be brilliant. Um, firstly, I might start with you, Henrik. Um, is there an entrepreneur that has inspired you? Um, again, a bit of a general question, but is there someone, it could be someone in your portfolio, a friend, a parent, um, people have named their dogs. I mean, someone that can, you know, you get up in the morning might inspire you or might be a one-off. Like you read a story about, you know, Richard Branson one time, maybe you met him um, and that inspires you. But I guess someone that kind of embodies perhaps what entrepreneurship means um, and those traits. Is there anyone that stands out to you? Yeah, of course. Um, And by proxy, I can steal your idea of Richard Branson because I think I'd probably have to go for my mother, as I mentioned at the very start of the podcast, who is herself inspired to some extent by Richard Branson. Um, But I think that growing up um, surrounded by, you know, the values that it's, that it is required to be a successful entrepreneur, which is Mm -hmm. fundamentally, you know, an incredible passion for something very specific, incredible hard work um, and understanding of people, um, understanding your clients, but also understanding your own team. And I think, putting all of those things together, um, even when I was very young, I probably didn't really understand the meaning of uh, a lot of what she was doing. Um, that that was an incredible inspiration for me, if slightly corny, choosing, uh, choosing my mum. Hello. You know, I was thinking the other day, now that my, I am a parent, believe it or not, um, you know, you're with your parents for at least a good 20 years at the beginning. It's a big chunk. It's very informative. So, yeah, if they didn't influence you, there'd be, there'd be um, a problem. But, no, that's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that with us. I love that. Um, and yourself, Chris, um, is there someone that stood out to you on your journey? Yeah, so, so last time I was asked this question, I said Bill Gates and then the team – roundly told me I was an old man and that only old only an old man would give that answer so uh, on reflection <laughs> um I would say um I'd actually say someone that I've worked with a lot more closely which is Paul Taylor at Thought Machine so Thought Machine is one of our our fun one companies um building uh, core banking software 
um, without doubt, you know, one of the most successful companies uh, in the first fund. And I think it was also one of the first uh, board seats I took when I joined Playfair. And I think Paul has really sort of shown me that there's, you know, if you've got a, an amazing idea and you know how to execute, there's really no limit to what you can achieve. And I've just been so impressed with the way that he's, you know, continued to push on, uh, continue to build an incredible business. So, yeah, mine would be Paul Taylor. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Paul Taylor, big shout out to you. Um, and last question, well, second last, <laughs> if you were gambling, and now we don't endorse gambling by any means here at Palais Me, um, but we always like to, you know, um, this question to kind of understand people a little bit better. But if you were to have a flutter, would you be a roulette, a blackjack or a poker player? Um, you go first, Chris. <laughs> on the basis I have no skill whatsoever, roulette. roulette. I'll take it all on roulette. Well, you are you are an early stage investor, so that would make sense. Uh, and yourself, Henrik? I think I'd have to choose poker because I like the idea that I could count my cards even if I can't. And I like the idea of, you know, being in Casino Royale or a film like that where, you know, you can't, can't go wrong if you... Uh, Daniel Craig in a casino, right? Playing poker. Yeah. You've got a strategy. I like it. I like it. Well, it always says a lot about people. It's very interesting. Um, and again, we're not endorsing gambling folks, but it's always always good to know. Finally, for those listening, how can they get on the radar of Playfair Capital? I mean, in this post, I'm not going to say post-pandemic. I keep saying that. We're in a pandemic. Um, in this pandemic world, is it LinkedIn? Is it send you an email? Is it submit a form? Is it stalk you at an online event? Like what is the best? Is there a best way? Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So just go to our website, playfaircapital.com, and we have a pitch form that is open to everybody. Um, and in fact, we've just gone through a process of streamlining it. So it's really quick and simple to fill in. You can upload your deck and it'll get reviewed by one of the team. Excellent. Well, look, folks, I have loved chatting with you both today. If we had more time, it'd be great. But we've filled out a good hour here and I think it's jam-packed with some great goodies for everyone. So thank you so much for your time. Folks, you heard it. Head to their website, fill out the form, um, do your due diligence, get on their radar. They're worth it. It's Playfair Capital. Thank you guys again. I really appreciate your time today. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, January. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.